The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We believe that God speaks today. He's a living God, and he speaks through his word, through scripture, through the Bible. These are his thoughts, his words that he commissioned his people to write down, preserve for us through the Holy Spirit. And so when we read it, we can know with confidence this is what God has revealed to his people. So it's our privilege to study his word together. So I would invite you to go to Matthew 16. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 26. And in light of Resurrection Sunday or Easter, as we call it, coming up, tis that time of the season, we want to prepare our hearts a few weeks ahead of time from a biblical point of view, from God's word. In light of as we walk and live in the world, we're being inundated with False messages and the true Easter message or resurrection message is drowned out and clouded out through false versions and just a secular message that has nothing to do with reality. So we cut through that with God's word and prepare our hearts, our minds, as we look forward with great rejoicing that Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. It's the greatest event in the history of the world. It gives the only meaning there is to life as we know it for humanity and his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection is the focal point of God's plan really for all of history. We need to understand it. The title for the sermon that I actually began last week is called Preparing for Crucifixion. In other words, we're looking at Jesus's life. He had a three and a half or about a three-year ministry, a little more than three years we know from the Gospels. And it was in the last year, the last six to nine months where he specifically began to prepare for the crucifixion, preparing himself, but specifically preparing his apostles, his 12 apostles. He'd been teaching them for two years plus, many things they needed to know. He'd been modeling many things to them by way of teaching as well. But now he turns the corner and he has a new emphasis in his teaching in his remaining six to now three months that he would be with them. And one of the main things that Jesus emphasizes now that's different and unique that he hasn't been talking to his 12 apostles about is his death. And we're going to see that in this passage. He's been going around Jerusalem, the temple, teaching publicly, especially during feast days. Masses were thronging around him, the crowds, as he was healing, teaching like no other person had ever taught before. So he's definitely unique, but they didn't quite understand who he was. Down in Jerusalem, the leadership, the the religious leadership, also was listening attentively and carefully to who this Jesus from Nazareth was. They didn't respond positively like the crowds. They were very negative and hostile. As a matter of fact, early on, they put a bounty on his head. They were trying to kill him, literally. As a result, Jesus stayed away from Jerusalem as much as he could and only went there at strategic times. To preserve his life, really, to not undermine or circumvent God the Father's full, complete plan. So he spent most of his time in ministry up going north of Jerusalem to Galilee, the area where he grew up. And that's kind of where he had ministry headquarters. So much of the Gospels talk about his ministry in Galilee. But even in Galilee, he was beginning to get resistance and hostility from the people who were benefiting from his ministry because they were losing patience with him. And not only that, the religious leaders as well up there 
in Galilee, in the, the synagogue and the Pharisees. And then some of the leaders in Jerusalem were traveling up to Galilee from the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, pressuring Jesus, trying to shut him down, trying to hunt him down, trying to arrest him. And so it reaches a crescendo here after two years of ministry, and Jesus decides as he's up there in Galilee, I need to get away. I need to get away with to be by myself. I need to be isolated from the crowds. I need to be isolated from the hostility. I need to be with the Father, and I need to take my 12 apostles with me because I need to give them special teaching, and I need to prepare them for what's about to happen. And so that's where we left off last week. So look at verse 13. Again, this is near the end of Jesus' ministry, just maybe months away from the cross now. Verse 13 says in Matthew 16, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so where is that? It's a place he hasn't really been before as far as we know, looking at the Gospels and doing ministry. He did a lot of ministry in, by the Sea of Galilee, and this means that he went 30 miles north, straight up north towards the tribe of Dan, as far as you could go up in Israel before you reach into Syria and those areas. And we talked about last week how uh, up in that area was Mount Hermon, a famous mountain in the Bible, about 9,000 feet high, and it seems to always have snow on the top of it. You can go there today, go to a ski resort there. I've uh, been able to go up there and, and visit at the foot of the mountain, but it's 30 miles going north, a two-day journey for Jesus and his 12 apostles by foot or camel or whatever they were taking. And they're getting away from the Jewish leaders and they're getting away from the crowds. That's the point. And they're going to be up there for a good seven days to 10 days, maybe two weeks. Kind of a retreat. So they get up to the city called up in that area at the foot of the Mount uh, Hermon up there called Caesarea Philippi. And it was mostly a Gentile city, not very many Jews. There are some pagan temples up in that area. It's a beautiful area. And that's where he takes his apostles. And that's where this scene happens, where he is going to, in this area, give some significant and amazing, really shocking new revelation that he hasn't spoken of for two years. And we saw last week one of the new revelations that Jesus Christ gave was the full explanation in terms of his identity. Up to this point, he's been with his apostles for two years. They thought he was unique. They even called him Messiah, but they didn't have the full understanding of what that meant. He's a special man. Uh, from their understanding, the Messiah in the Old Testament was a person as far as they could tell. So they knew Jesus was special. They thought the Messiah was a political figure. And justifiably so, because there are many passages in the Old Testament uh, that predicted that the Messiah would be a political figure, a domineering, all-powerful almost, if you looked at some of the details, political figure. He was more than a political figure, but definitely they were thinking he was a political figure. Look at Psalm 2, just by way of introduction, because this will play into what uh, we're going to be looking at. Psalm 2, Remember, Jesus' 12 apostles, they were Jewish. They grew up in the synagogue. They were studied the Old Testament. They knew Psalm 2. It's one of those unique psalms that it specifically talks about this coming Messiah that they were looking forward to. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus. They probably had it memorized in Hebrew. And here's what they understood about the Messiah. God, Yahweh, verse 4 of Psalm 2, sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord Yahweh scoffs at them. Who? He's scoffing. God is up in heaven laughing at his enemies. He's still doing that, by the way. Verse 5, then he will speak to them, his enemies, in anger. 
Does God get angry? Yes, he does. And he will terrify his enemies with his fury. How's he going to do it ultimately? Verse 6, but as for me, says God, I have installed my king. This is a prophecy speaking of the future, so you could translate it as God is looking into the future. I will install my king. Who's he talking about? He is talking about the Messiah. This is a coming person. This is a Jew from Israel. I will install my king. So a king implies political authority. So he's not just a religious figure. He is a religious figure, but he's more than that. I will install my king upon Zion. That's a specific place in Israel, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Who is this Messiah, the king? Well, he's the son of God. There it is. It doesn't say son of man, because that's only in Daniel chapter 7, as we learned from last week. But here he is. There is a son who belongs to God, who belongs to Yahweh, who will be a king, who will be installed, who reigns with authority. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. So he's not just going to rule over Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the nations. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. You shall break. And look at what the Messiah does. He's not a suffering servant in this passage. He's not lowly. He's not obscure. He's not powerless. He's not homeless. He's not suffering. He's not deprived. He's not ostracized or rejected. This is a different picture and portrait of this coming Messiah. And it's one-sided. He is political. He reigns. He's powerful. He's full of fury and vengeance. This was probably the apostle, one of their favorite passages. Man, they love to meditate on this one. He's going to rule over the nations. Well, it's about time. We're sick of this Roman domination of our country. We are tired of these Roman-controlled tax collectors taking more than they deserve. This is the mindset of the Jews in Jesus' day. Boy, I can't wait till this Messiah comes. He's going to rule over the nations. The very ends of the earth will be his possession. Wow. Verse 9. This Messiah shall break them, his enemies, with a rod of iron. He shall shatter them like earthenware. That is destructive and disruptive. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Kings, that's the rulers of the earth. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Worship Yahweh literally with reverence. And with reverence and rejoicing and trembling, be afraid of our God in his coming Messiah. Verse 13, do homage to the sun. One translation legitimately says, kiss the sun. Worship the sun. Bow down to the sun. Pay heed to the sun. Do homage to the sun, this coming Messiah, the king of Yahweh. And if you don't, you better because do homage to the sun, kiss the sun in order that he not become angry and you perish in the way. That's Jesus, the Messiah. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That Messiah is coming. That Messiah is coming and just taking us back now to Matthew 13. This is all the apostles know and think for the most part about the Messiah. They, they took out all those wonderful passages and there are dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of them in the Old Testament, how the coming Messiah would be a powerful political representative of God reigning in Israel, pro-Jew, ruler of the earth, wielding power and authority, crushing his enemies. And scene one in John chapter 2, that some of the apostles probably were eyewitnesses to that kicked off Jesus' public ministry right after Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit and he begins his ministry, the first thing he does, he turns water into wine and then he clears out the, the temple. 
And the way he did it was in keeping with Psalm 2. He got angry. He's throwing tables around. He's throwing chairs around. He's throwing money around. He's yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs, cursing those who are abusing the temple. And you can imagine as the apostles are watching, like, wow, here it is, Psalm 2. This is awesome. Who's this guy? I want to join with this guy. I want to be in his band. Well, that's how it started. But for two years, Jesus didn't do anything like that again, as far as we know. He went into suffering servant mode. He went to, into homeless mode. He went into being a merciful, gracious preacher, healer, with the main responsibility of proclaiming the gospel, that he came to save sinners. That was his message. And so for two years, he was idle as this very powerful political ruler with a rod of iron. Didn't happen. You know who's getting disgruntled after two years about this? Yep, Judas. Hey, wait a minute. That's why I signed on. The other 11 apostles, what are they? Well, they're confused. Wait, he's not doing what we thought he was going to do, what we expected him to do, what we think he should do. So all of that confusion, all of that background, all of that ambiguity, that is all in this passage. Let's go ahead and look at it. We looked at uh, the first, we got four points here, 13 to 17. We looked at Jesus uh, reveals, he pulls his 12 apostles aside and says, uh, who do people say that I am here in Jerusalem? And then they gave four wrong answers. Well, people say you're this, they say you're Elijah, they say you're Jeremiah, they say you're a resurrected prophet, uh, they say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. <clears throat> wrong answer. Jesus has been there publicly for two years. They still don't know who he is. You know, we could say the same thing today. We've been talking about Jesus, the church has, for 2,000 years, and people still don't know who he is. They come up with the same old answers. Oh, he's a prophet. He's a teacher. He was a good rabbi. He was a nice man. He helped people. He was a good model. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Those are secondary to who Jesus really is. And so, and then Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you guys say that I am? And Jesus uh, allowed Peter to, actually, God the Father spoke through Peter, and Peter gave the right answer. He said, thou art the Christ, the one of the Old Testament, the anointed one, the coming one, the one who represents Yahweh. Not only are you the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You have the very same nature as God himself. You are deity. That was the proclamation. This was new revelation. It had never been spoken like this before. Peter never had the fullness of this understanding until now. This was alarming. This was shocking. Maybe some of the other apostles had no idea Peter was going to say this. Probably so, because God the Father was the one who revealed it by divine revelation instantaneously on the spot. It was not apart from what Peter had been exposed to over the course of two years, because he had been exposed to all these truths about Jesus, seen his miracles, heard him preach, knows the scripture. And God the Father put it, connected all of the dots for Peter in his mind, letting him know the fullness of who Jesus is. And I put... As a subtitle to the sermon here, preparing for the crucifixion, a true disciple of Jesus must understand the meaning of Jesus's death. You must understand the meaning of Jesus death, which means before that, you must understand who Jesus is. You can't be a Christian unless you fully understand who Jesus is. You can't be born again, have your sins forgiven, be a Christian, be a, in the family of God, unless you know who Jesus is. And it starts right here with his person, that he is more than a man. He is God in human flesh. He is deity. And that's what Peter got, and that's what the apostles got. And, and, and Jesus was rejoicing. Praise God. Blessed are you, Peter. 
for this proclamation. You got it right and everybody else got it wrong. This is where salvation starts. This is where the Christian gospel starts as we talk to people who don't know Christ, who don't, who are not Christians. Issue number one, topic number one priority isn't, um, so do you believe in creation? Do you believe in evolution? That's not the gospel. It should be no surprise that unbelievers don't believe in creation. That they believe in evolution. That's a no-brainer. Well, of course, if I was an unbeliever, I would believe in evolution too. That's not the gospel. The good news is Jesus. That's where it starts. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I tell you the gospel, the first word is Jesus or Christ. Talking to an unbeliever, you got to talk to Je- you talk to talk about Jesus, talk about Christ, and usually they, they might get uncomfortable. Oh, they want to change the subject. Yeah, should tell you something. What do you think of Jesus? Hey, there's a good lead-in line. It's a good question. So tell me, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think he is? And there's your conversation, and you're getting to the heart of the matter. This is where it starts. They can't be saved unless they understand that that he is God. He's eternal God. He is deity. He is uncreated. He's one with the Father. He's one with the Spirit. He created all things. He's the ultimate judge. No one gets to heaven except through him. He is the Savior. He's the only one who can forgive sin. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all of our thoughts. He knows everything we do. We're accountable to him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That's what people have to understand. That is step one in getting forgiveness of sin and understanding the gospel and the true meaning of Easter. So that was point number one last week, understanding his divine person. He is the son of God. Then we surveyed point number two. Let's look at it. 18 through 20. Not only do you have to understand who Jesus is, that he is deity. He is God. To have a right relationship with him, you also have to know point number two, understanding the redeeming purpose. Jesus came for one purpose, and it was to purchase sinners, to die for sinners. Why did Jesus come into the world? That's just a fun question to ask people particularly unbelievers, people at work, your colleagues, your next-door neighbor. You ever heard of Jesus? Yeah, why do you think Jesus came into the world? You're going to get all kinds of answers, but there will be a theme of common answers that you will get. Well, he came to do good. Well, that's a true statement. He did come to do good, but that's not specific enough. Well, he came to represent God. Yeah, that's true, but it's not the full answer. He came to be a model, an example for us all. Uh, Sort of says the book of first peter but that's not the main reason he came jesus told us why he came john 18 he told uh pilate why he came came to reveal truth in the gospel luke he told us why he came he came to seek and to save sinners who were lost hebrews chapter 2 tells us why he, he came he came to conquer the devil and to destroy his greatest weapon which is death he came to die on the cross for sinners He came to fulfill God's plan. He came to redeem a people for his own. So he came as a savior, first time. Very clear. And the way that Jesus chose to do that, or God the Father, was Jesus was going to establish the church, build the church, and through the church would now be the new conduit by which God the Father would pour out his truth to the rest of the world with the message of the gospel, that message that only can save sinners. So that's why he talks about this is a new truth. So new truth in verses 13 through 17, new revelation. Jesus is fully deity in a human body. New truth in verses 18 through 20. Jesus is going to build the church. Let's go ahead and look at it. I want to look at it in more detail because we didn't exhaust it at all fairly enough last week because this is so important. So actually next week we're going to look on Palm Sunday. We'll look at the last two points, which is very appropriate. 
if you look at the context here, but I just thought we need to know uh, about the church better. After all, if you're a Christian, did you know you are a member of the church? And there is no more explicit passage in all of the Bible that tells you about the meaning of the church, the Lord of the church, your identity as being a part of the church. This is where it all starts. So we need to exhaust this. So I do want to go through verses 18 through 20. Let's look at it together. Our understanding of the church. So in verse 17, Jesus blessed Peter. Actually, he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this amazing truth to you, but my Father in heaven directly revealed it to you. This is divine revelation. You are blessed, Peter, as a result. And then Jesus goes on, verses 18 through 20. I also say to you, Peter, that you are Peter, you are Petros is the Greek word. Petra means rock, but Petros here, very specific Greek word. Jesus changed Simon Peter, Simon Jonah, uh, son of Jonah's name to Peter as kind of a symbol of his salvation and his calling to be an apostle. And he called him Petros, great name, Peter. Petros, it is a masculine noun and it means stone. Smaller stone, like a stone you can hold. You're not, now I'm not talking to you as Simon the man. Simon who is finite as a human. Now I'm talking to you as Peter, the apostle, the ambassador of God, the recipient of divine revelation, the one who's going to do my work and my bidding when I leave this earth. One of the 12 apostles. That's the significance. You are Peter. You're a stone. You're going to be solid in representing me in ministry, unlike Judas, who was not solid. But I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock... So Peter, Petros, little rock, and he says, and upon this rock, and that's a different word, Petra, that's not masculine, it's feminine. So there's a definite distinction between these two words. In other words, Jesus is not calling Peter this rock. This rock is something different. The demonstrative pronoun, this, he's referring to something else, not Peter. By the way, the word Petra, this rock, very specific, and it refers to a huge, massive boulder, a, a, a massive cliff, a massive rock. There's a very clear distinction. Peter, you're a rock, but you're just a, a little stone. But there's something else that's of greater strength and stability than you, and it's this massive rock. And what is that? There's only one answer in the Bible. And as Jews, the apostles would have been familiar with this. All throughout the Old Testament, God and Yahweh alone is referred to as the rock. If you look at 1 Samuel 2, I think it's verse 2, Hannah's beautiful prayer there, and she just the whole long chapter she's just giving praise to god and reciting his attributes and she says god basically yahweh you are the rock you are the only rock the only rock peter is not the rock god is the rock all throughout scripture in the psalms scripture tells us in corinthians that jesus existed in the old testament he was with the israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness in the pillar of light the pillar of fire the pillar of cloud and he was the rock the rock, the big rock, the massive rock. The rock who's equal with Yahweh. God is the only rock. There are no substitutes. There are no competitors. So all of scripture informs us. This is not difficult. I'm going, and then he says, Peter, you're a stone. I'm going to use you, but upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. I'm not building my church on Peter. Jesus Christ doesn't build his church on any man. It is Christ's church. 
And he builds it on himself, the fact and the reality of who he is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church, the ultimate foundation or the chief cornerstone. God will use the apostles in terms of their teaching and their doctrine that they got from Jesus anyway to build the church and help it grow. But Peter is not the rock of the church. So he goes on, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or you could say death will not prevail over it or overcome it or undermine it. Once I start building my church, nothing is going to overcome it. Nothing's going to destroy it. Nothing's going to overmine it. Um, nothing will take away. It will continue on in perpetuity and continuity all throughout history until God's plan is fully fulfilled. There is no other institution or entity that can say that in human history. When Jesus said, I will build my church, this was 2,000 years ago. And it remains true today. Jesus' church still exists. And it exists in perpetuity and continuity without missing a beat all throughout 2,000 years of church history. Now, there are false religions who have come along and said, oh, you know what? The church went dormant and actually died and it needed to be restored. Hence, the Mormon religion in the 1830s. That's their doctrine and basis. But, well, you know, the church died out. Had to resuscitate it. No, Jesus said, no, nothing will ever overcome it. It will continue on. Even even the patriots someday are going down. They will not continue on in perpetuity. Only the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. This is what I wanted to get into for, and really personalize this. If I were to ask you, if you're a Christian today, so are you a part of the church? Oh, absolutely. And then I'd ask follow-up questions. Is when, How long has the church been around? Or was the church in existence in the Old Testament? That's that's an interesting question. Don't answer out loud. Just think about it. You might don't want to embarrass yourself. Did the church exist in the Old Testament? Well, there are many Christians who would say yes. So I was teaching in seminary this week a class on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And the guys in my classes, half of them are pastors already anyway. They love the Bible, study the Bible. And so I just asked, I asked each one of them, sort of the church exist in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, they're like the 11 apostles. Other than people. They didn't want to answer because they were afraid because they didn't want to be wrong. I don't have any Peters in my class. Did the church exist? In the, so then I pressed them and they're uh, they were confused. Uh, yes. Wait. Uh, no. And then I point out a verse. Well, no. Wait. Are you sure? Well, yeah. Well, this well-known theologian that you like says so. Oh, OK. Yeah. It's in a systematic theology. Oh, OK. But the, Jesus said this. Oh, OK. Then no. And we're going back and forth, having a fun discussion. Like one of the best well-known systematic theologies that all the evangelical reads, evangelicals read. Literally, I am not kidding. It says, he says that the church began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And then later he says the church began with Abraham in Genesis 12. And then he says the church began with Moses. 1400 BC. And then he says that the church began in the, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So he, he, he's just covering all bases. And I would say, no. So I, I would propose that scripture is clear that the church does not and did not exist in the Old Testament. So just to get away from that confusion. So when Jesus says to Peter and the other apostles, uh, I, am, I will build my church. This is real basic. I will build my church. Will sounds like what tense of a verb? Well, it's future. That is correct. So this is future. This sounds like what? This is a prophecy. Yes, you can write it down. This is a prophecy that Jesus is making that he's going to do something new in the future. I will build my church. In other words, my church doesn't exist yet. By the way, he's been teaching for two years. And you know how many times Jesus mentioned the church in two years of talking to the apostles up to this point? Zero. 
This is the first time the word church exists in the Gospels and in Jesus' ministry. This is the tail end of his ministry, and Jesus hasn't even talked about the church. It hasn't even come up. This is new information. And they're like, huh? You're going to build the church? So future verb, prophecy, very simple. It's new information. And he says, I'm going to build my church. Now, again, there are many Bible teachers, many good Bible teachers, respected ones, uh, particularly those of uh, covenant theology, we would call them, who would insist that, no, the church has been around for all the ages. Everybody who ever got saved in the Old Testament is part of the church, always has been. And they're just confusing categories. It's not really that difficult. And what they're confusing, they're saying that the church is the ultimate umbrella theme and paradigm uh, that overrides all of God's salvation plan throughout all history, the church. So Abel was part of the church. Abel was a man of faith, so he was a part of the church, they would say, even though the Bible doesn't say Abel was a part of the church. Now, did Israel exist yet when Abel was saved? Nope. But was Abel saved? Yes. Hebrews 11 says that Abel was a man of faith. Then you go through some time and then, oh, there's Noah. He was a man of God. He was a believer. He was redeemed. He was saved by God. He was adopted in the family of God. Was he a part of Israel? Nope. He was saved before Israel was created. Was he a part of the church? Nope. Church didn't exist yet, but he's in the family of God. And Hebrews 11 says that Noah is a man of faith. So Abel and Noah are a man. They're men of faith, along with those who believed with him in those days. And then it moves forward in Hebrews 11 to Abraham. At age 75, he's a total pagan. And then God saved him while he was in his 80s. And Hebrews 11 says he was a man of faith. So he was redeemed. He was saved. The righteousness of God was reckoned to him. Was he a member of the clan of Israel? Not yet. Israel would be created through Abraham, but he wasn't a part of Israel. He would become the grandfather of the Jews. So he's just a pagan who got saved, and he's in the family of God. Is he in the church? No, he's not in the church. Church doesn't exist yet. Israel doesn't exist yet. Then you fast forward to Moses. And Hebrews 11 says that Moses was a man of faith. And he became a believer. Was Moses a part of the church? No. Was he a part of Israel? Yes. The covenant community of Israel, which God had created at a certain point in time. So from the time of Moses until the time of Christ is the community of Israel. They are the people of God. And that's God's program during that time. Prior to Moses, or prior to Abraham, Israel didn't exist, but people were still getting saved. Abel was saved. He was a believer, but he wasn't a member of the Jews. He wasn't an Israelite, and he wasn't a part of the church, but he was saved. He was a child of God. And then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus is going to do a new thing. Okay, before Moses and Abraham came along, I was saving people apart from the nation of Israel. But then when Moses and Abraham came along, I decided to get the message out and save people through the community of the Israelites. That's why if a pagan wanted to come to know Yahweh, they had to become a Jew first. So if you were a male pagan and you wanted to get saved, then you had to get circumcised and become a Jew to be a part of God's community. That was required during the days when God was working through Israel. Prior to Abraham, you didn't have to become a Jew to get saved. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is going to do a new thing. Okay, uh, I was saving people apart from Israel. I was saving people through the community of Israel. Now I'm going to do a new thing. And it's called the church. And it's called not any church. It's called my church, the church of Jesus Christ. This was new information. The apostles, at this point, I guarantee they didn't even know what he was talking about. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my assembly. 
my church, meaning the church of Jesus Christ, the true church, and I'm going to build it, and it's yet future. He's going to do it through the apostles and through the doctrine that he would give them, the truth that he would uh, designate them as stewards of. That's how Jesus would build his church. And so simple things you can think about to prove that the church did not exist in the Old Testament. Number one, if you read your Bible in English, the whole Testament, you will never find the word church. So it's just not there. It doesn't exist. That's number one. Number two, the church didn't exist in the Old Testament because Jesus said he was going to build it. It's future. It is yet to happen. It didn't happen during the course of his ministry. It will happen when he dies on the cross, rises again, and ascends and commissions his apostles. And Jesus said the church will begin with the work of his apostles when he sends the Spirit of God, John chapter 7 and other verses. That's So the church is yet future. And during the course of the church age, that's the main conduit by which God will get his saving truth out to the whole world, just as the way he used the Israelites. Now he's going to use the church. And that's what he said through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the foundation of the apostles. So, uh, and Jesus laid the foundation of the church on the truth that was given to the apostles. And that's why Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. Were there apostles in the Old Testament? No. Church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Apostles are in the New Testament. The church was built on their foundation. The foundation is the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And it has been growing and Jesus has been building it for the last 2,000 years. And how does Jesus build his church as he promised to do? It's with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth about him. That sinners need to recognize God is holy. They need to bow the knee to Jesus as savior. They need to acknowledge that they are sinful. And they need to believe that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary, purposeful death on their behalf, in their place, where God the Father poured his wrath on Jesus on the cross so that that sinner's sins might be forgiven for all time. And it's nothing we do to get saved. It is all the work of God. It is all the work of Jesus. What are we responsible for? Believing that truth, believing that message, appropriating, assimilating, owning it literally with understanding personally into our lives by faith. You do that, then God redeems you. He saves you. You are born again. You're adopted into his family. And it happens in an instantaneous moment of time. And then when you're adopted into God's family, you are secure in him for all eternity. That's what Jesus came to do, and that's the church. And that's how he saves people, one soul at a time, with the simple gospel of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. That's what Jesus promises. That's, I'm going to build the church. They had no idea yet what that meant. But they were the ones come Pentecost who would spearhead this mission. And very successfully. I will build my church. One last reason we know that the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. This is explicit. Ephesians chapter 3. I want to read it because it's so explicit. Ephesians chapter 3. We know that the church did not exist in the Old Testament. It was a new thing that God was doing. Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul. So you got these 12 apostles. One is a dud. That's Judas. He gets replaced by Matthias. Now you got 12 apostles. They're central in Jerusalem. They're primarily only preaching to Jews for five years. And then Jesus' master plan is he's the savior of the world. We got to get outside the confines of Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea. And we need to go to the uttermost parts of the earth with this gospel about me to save sinners. So I'm going to use the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles to do that. So five, six years after Jesus died, God saves this Jew named Saul and changes his name to Paul. Paul becomes the 13th apostle. Paul is now a conduit of divine revelation where God 
And Jesus Christ literally is giving Paul information, new information, much new information that the other 12 apostles didn't get with Jesus on earth. He got the same information, but he also got a lot of new information. Many of the, much of this new information Paul deemed with the word mystery. Musterion in the Greek. Musterion, mystery. Every time you see that word, it is a technical word. And it means new information wasn't in the Old Testament. You can't find it. The prophets in the Old Testament didn't know about it. Jesus didn't talk about it with his 12 apostles during the three years of their ministry on earth. This is new information given later to the apostle Paul, primarily about the church. So listen to these mysteries that jump out. Here's Paul. He's into his ministry. He was pastor at Ephesians, Ephesus for three years. And here's what he says, starting at verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, 13th apostle, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, I'm the, the apostle to the Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, came from God, I'm responsible for it. I'll be held accountable for it, but he's the author. Well, what'd you get from God, Paul? Well, verse three, I got divine revelation. That by revelation, that's divine revelation, new information, new truth, that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, the mystery, the mysterion, a truth that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Well, what is it? Well, as I wrote before in brief, verse four, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So it's about Christ. New information. Verse five, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. There it is. This information about the mystery of Christ or the church of Jesus Christ was not made known in the Old Testament. In other generations was not made known. As it has now been revealed, get this, not only to the Apostle Paul, has been revealed to his holy apostles and his New Testament prophets through the Spirit of God. This is new information. What, well, what is the new truth? Is that Gentiles will be saved? No, that's an old truth. God was saving Gentiles in the Old Testament. Abel was a Gentile. He got saved. Noah, was a, he wasn't a Jew. Gentile, he got saved. Melchizedek, he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He got saved. So God was saving Gentiles. That's nothing new. Job, man, I've got, he, he was not a Jew. Gentile. That's not the mystery. Well, what is it? Well, to be specific, verse 6, that the Gentiles are, get this, fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. What's the new truth? The body. The body of Christ. Look in the Old Testament for the phrase, the body of Christ. You won't find it. Why? Because it doesn't exist. The body of Christ was Paul's favorite phrase to designate the church. The body of Christ, the body of Christ. It was a new reality, a new entity, a new truth. And that was for a Gentile to be saved. He didn't have to get circumcised and become a Jew first. He didn't have to go through the front door, or the screen door of Judaism to get in the family of God. He could go directly to the Savior, Jesus himself, not by any human works whatsoever, not by the Mosaic law, but only by grace through faith and believe in the gospel. Instantaneous salvation added to this new man, the entity called the church of Jesus Christ. That is the mystery. That is not in the Old Testament. This is what God is building today. This is what Jesus is investing in today, the church. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, the body of Christ, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There it is. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. I was blessed with this new information to me, the very least of all the saints. I was a former, I used to kill Christians. I don't deserve this grace. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for all 
ages has been hidden in God. Did the church exist in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. It was a mystery. It was hidden. And now revealed through the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and the other apostles. What a blessed truth. So going back to Matthew 16, where Jesus says, I will build my church. And he's not going to stay on earth to do it. He's going to use his apostles to do it. And his apostles are going to make disciples, and then those disciples are going to do it. And the apostles will die, and then the next generation of Christians will do it. And that's been going on for 2,000 years, and now that is our blessed privilege. God, Jesus Christ, is building his church through us. Not our own power, not our own wisdom, but through one thing, the gospel, his gospel. We are stewards of it. We're responsible for it. The church is a steward of the gospel. It is the only thing that can save. It's the only message. We don't add to that message. We don't take away from that message. We don't apologize for that message. We aren't ashamed of that message. We don't water down the message. We have confidence in the message. We pray about the message as we deliver it. We deliver it and let God do his work. The message of Jesus Christ, the scandal of the cross, the offense of its truth always has two results. It warms people and draws them to Christ or it hardens their heart and turns them away in hostility. We trust God with the results. Very simple. As far as God's calling, I will build my church and the gates of death. The gates of hell will not overpower it. The church will always exist. It will always persevere. It will never be undone and it will exist until it reaches the ultimate goal where Jesus Christ and God the Father are preparing the church throughout the ages into this beautiful, precious, spotless bride who will be presented to Jesus in a spiritual wedding at the end of the ages. And if you're a Christian, you're a part of that church. And if you're a part of the church, you're a part of that precious bride who will be married to Jesus Christ someday for all eternity. That is cause for celebration. Well, how's he going to accomplish this? Well, he's going to start by using these 12 apostles. Verse 19, I will give you, Peter and the apostles, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Keys. You think keys, you think authority, you think power. That's all it means. There are different kinds of keys in the New Testament. Uh, So this is a very limited kind of authority that Jesus is giving the apostles. It's delegated authority. It is not their own. They're stewards of it. They're accountable to God for this authority. It's delimited by the contents of Scripture. Again, we don't have the privilege to add to it or take away from it at our own whim. But I'm going to give you authority, Peter, and all the apostles. And not only the apostles, but also the church. The church will have a divine, heavenly, spiritual authority to do limited but very powerful things. The the authority to proclaim the gospel that saves sinners. That is the authority of the church. And if you're a Christian, that is authority you have delegated to you by God. And here specifically, you have the authority to lay the foundation of the church as apostles. I'm going to give you divine revelation. They're going to write it down. They're going to include it in what is called the New Testament. Then the apostles died and we still have God's word. We have everything we need to know about church. Everything we need to know about being a Christian, living in this world. It is completely sufficient and adequate. And I'm giving you the keys, Peter, you and your apostles. You have authority. You have delegated power. It comes from heaven. It's not earthly. It's not of man. And whatever you bind. And then he gets into deep. Well, what do you mean? Well, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you're going to echo the authority of heaven here down on earth. 
as you function as an apostle, as you function with biblical truth, and as you function in the entity of the church on spiritual matters, on eternal truths. You have that authority. If you look at two chapters later, Jesus says the exact same phrase again to his disciples going through the church discipline process, and he tells them, here's how you confront sin. First, you confront one person and then with a couple people, and then if they don't repent, you tell it to the whole church. And if they don't repent, being confronted by the whole church, then you basically treat them as an unbeliever. You treat that professing Christian as a Gentile or a tax collector. Oh, that's a, you can't do that. Well, yeah, we can. No, that's offensive. That's politically incorrect. Someone might take a lawsuit against you. As, yeah, yeah, that's true. You have no right. Yeah, actually, we do. The church does. The church of Jesus Christ. It's right here. This is the authority. These are the keys of the authority that he's talking about. So right after that, verse 18, truly, I say to you, you have the right church to implement church discipline. Why? Because whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. If you've done the process right and biblically, God already made the decree that is a binding up in heaven. And you're just now making it true down on earth. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you're doing the work of God here on earth through the conduit of the church with the authority of God. Those are the exact same phrases he's being used about what are the keys. And then you can look at uh, John chapter 20. I think it's verse 23. He says the same thing. Whatever sins you bind shall be bound. Whatever sins you remit shall be forgiven. That's not just one man. That is the church. And that is the church in keeping with the promise of Scripture and because of the work of Christ. So going back to Matthew 16, I will build my church and I'm going to give you the keys uh, of authority from heaven itself uh, to manage the church, to lay the foundation of the church, to oversee the church. This uh, authority will extend not just to apostles, but all believers as the entity of the church. After all, the church is the people who believe in Jesus Christ and the church is not a building. The church is the people of God. And first Timothy chapter three, verse 15 says the church is the household of God and get this, the pillar of the truth. We are stewards of God's truth as a church and every legitimate local church is as well. And the universal church is. we have the truth. And we can be confident about it. Well, this is amazing, new, shocking revelation. There's a couple passages in uh, Mark nine, nine and ten. Mark 9, 31 and 32, Luke 18, verse 34, where it says a lot of this information was hidden from the apostles. They didn't understand it. Two interesting phrases it says uh, they didn't understand these things. And it said they were afraid to ask him. <laughs> they were afraid. You just even Peter, who's usually not afraid to speak up, it says they were afraid to ask. Whoa, whoa, you're going too fast. This is new information. What are you talking about? And that's literally what Luke says. They're going on and they're. It says they are Jesus makes a statement about these things and to themselves in a huddle over here. It says they were discussing among themselves these things that Jesus was talking about. And they had no idea what he was talking about. And what was it that he would die and rise again? That was the truth. They stumbled over. They didn't get it yet. And so here's Jesus purpose as he heads to the cross. I have got to get this into the mind of my 12 apostles. They they understand why I came and what it's going to mean when I die on the cross for sinners. And look past it three days to the glorious resurrection as the risen living Savior. And when I endow them with full authority and full power to keep doing my work with the gospel throughout the world. Through the church. Verse 20. 
we'll close with this. Then he warned the disciples that they should n- tell no one that he was the Messiah. And I, I mentioned this last week is, wow, they've learned that Jesus is deity. He is the Messiah. Uh, this is awesome. This is uh, he just blessed Peter. Let's go and tell everybody. And Jesus said, no, I don't want you to tell anybody. Be quiet. Don't say anything to anybody. Why is that? Because if they went around proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, they're only proclaiming half the gospel, right? Jesus hasn't died yet. What is the main ingredient or thing that needs to happen regarding the gospel? Jesus' death. He hasn't died for sinners yet. There is no gospel. He hasn't died yet. You can't go around and tell people good news because it hasn't happened yet. So he's quiet, wait, wait for the promise, wait for the spirit, wait till I meet you after the resurrection, then I will commission you. Don't say anything. Because Jesus doesn't want a truncated or watered down or half-baked gospel being preached to the people, giving them false hope, which is a good reminder for us today. When we talk about the gospel and the good news, we have to talk about the death of Christ and what it means. And that is offensive to people. But ironically, it's the only thing that can save a sinner. The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who came to save sinners from their sin. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for our time together. Uh, This season we call the Easter season or resurrection season. And thank you that we can think about it historically in parallel with what you've revealed in your word, in scripture, in the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who allows us to understand scripture. And as we believe by faith, especially if we know you as your children, we can understand it in its full meaning at the deepest level. And you can feed our soul satisfy our spiritual appetites, encourage our hearts with your truth, increase our faith. God, thank you for that blessed reality. And I pray that these dear people, your people, the children of God, would be encouraged from these wonderful truths that we've heard about this morning about the church of Christ and and being a part of it through your glorious work. And Father, if there's anybody who isn't sure yet, they don't know if they have a personal relationship with you or they're confused thinking it through. Use your Holy Spirit to enlighten their understanding. Convict their conscience, open their eyes, bring a believer to them to give them counsel and further insight. Be gracious, save their soul, adopt them into your family. We thank you. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.